0: podcast was recorded on August 10th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes.
1: All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman, and I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we are coming once again from the YouTube channel, uh, so you can catch us in video if you'd like to, or if you uh, use our preferred method, just go to your podcast app, and you can listen to us instead of having to, to look at us. But today we have a pretty special guest uh, coming from uh, across the water, and it's not across the pond, it's actually across the Pacific Ocean, we have Elizabeth Burst- Burton, who is the Chief Investment Officer of the Employees Retirement System of the state of Hawaii. Welcome, Elizabeth.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Nice to be here.
1: Yeah, so um, I think the acronym is HIRERS, H-I-E-R-S. So, there's always the ERS is when we get into the the pension system here. But um, see approximately $21 billion in assets. Um, you're also on the board of directors of the CAIA Um the Chartered Alternative Investment Association. Um, you've received many accolades in your in your short career, uh, where you've gotten the CIO Magazine's Top 40 Under 40. Um, you get uh, you've had many industry innovation awards, and I also see you're up for another award uh, for promoting your team significantly. So um, it sounds like you've seen you've, you've achieved a lot of accolades, but more importantly, you stress the the part of the team. So. Tell me about your role as a CIO and how you emphasize kind of that team spirit um, in leading uh, your investment staff.
2: Yeah, sure. I think that's the award I'm most excited about, but it's also pretty competitive. There's other people out there who support their team, including my former boss. But, um, you know, I think my situation was a little bit unique. You mentioned 40 under 40. That was a couple of years ago. I'm still under 40, but uh, which I hate being anchored to. That's just let's just move that down the pike. But um, I think when I came here, I was significantly younger than a lot of folks on my team um, and didn't maybe have as much, as many years of experience in the markets. Right. Like, so I think one of the benefits of supporting the team is, is that they've had decades more of experience than me and they've seen firsthand a lot of different market cycles. I mean, I was around in 08. I was actually um, trading mortgages back then, but that's pretty much until recently the biggest, shift in the markets I had seen. So supporting my team is pretty easy. I, I've said this before, and I like to joke that um, I only got into football about 10 years ago, and I know more about it than my husband does now. But he actually was like watching Lawrence Taylor, where I can only see the replays and hear about it. And so it's always great to have the benefit of experience of people who were there in the weeds who actually knew what it felt like, especially now that we've got these these more frequent major market moves than we had in the past.
1: Yeah, well, if you want to see it, unfortunately, uh, the beginning of the movie, The Blind Side, um, you know, the book by Michael Lewis, too, yeah. there is the intro of, of Lawrence Taylor in there, and he just, uh, he crushes uh, my San Francisco quarterback. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was a pretty, pretty ugly intro to the movie. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about a pension system, too, for, for our listeners that don't know a lot about it. So what, what is your objective as being a CIO and an allocator at a pension plan? Um, How how does it work and and what are you trying to achieve for your end clients?
2: I mean, I think the short answer is my objective is to achieve our target return within the given level of risk the board sets out, which would be 7% target return. I think there's a myriad of other responsibilities that are maybe not written into my contract, but are there. Um, You know, for example, trying to make sure that we're looking at investments in Hawaii, trying to make sure that we're investing responsibly. Um, trying to educate the public and retirees on what we're investing in. But at the end of the day, the number one thing I have to do is protect retirement benefits of the people who paid into the system or didn't pay into the system, depending on the year, but that are counting on this in the future. And I was speaking to someone today. I think that all sounds nice, but it's it's getting more challenging because if, uh, and I don't want to bring up inflation in the first nine minutes here, but- If we think about the possibility of high inflation, that job becomes more challenging on the liability side. And a lot of us have only been focused on the asset side for the last couple of decades because of where the market has gone. So it's becoming an increasingly difficult job.
1: Yeah. So you you mentioned the liability component. And so, you know, ultimately what you're trying to do is pay retirees, right? They pay system you're investing their money for them so that they can have this stream of income later in life. You said you have a 7% return objective but then you bring in this word inflation. Um why why do you care about inflation if your job is just to make a 7% return? <laughs> wow.
2: I uh, you know it's and it's funny because some pension funds actually do uh, produce I think Florida and Maryland actually have um, real target returns so we care about the real um, the real targets right because um, what good is that money that they're receiving if it's not uh, going to be able to to purchase the same amount of goods and services but but for me if you look at um, forward looking expectations and assume just we have a 60-40 portfolio it will be hard to get. A seven percent rate, but it's really hard to get that when real returns are are negative. So um, we we care about for that reason for one, but but second of all, our li- some pension funds liabilities are matched uh, to inflation, so they'll increase the higher that becomes. So then you're getting hurt on both sides of the coin. Because I like to think about it like a balance. One side we have the assets. One side we have liabilities. I'm supposed to be in charge of this. But I have to, uh, the asset side, but I have to watch what's happening on the uh, liabilities because it increases our cost of capital or discount rate, what have you.
1: Yeah. So uh, as you think about that, and now it's morphed to, you know, what what are you guys doing when thinking about the liability side? We, we've seen a big prevalence over the last decade or so of, you know, a lot of um, the pension system go to liability-driven investing, that is. They're trying to match the cash flows or the, uh, the ultimate liability of the plan. Um, and we've seen them go into fixed income assets, you know, very long duration uh, nature assets, which, as you say, uh, today don't really cut the mustard when it comes to inflation. Right. We, we have the, the long bond trading at roughly two percent today, a little inside of that, um, which is not keeping pace with inflation. So. How do you update your thinking and, you know, when you're looking at kind of the universe, we've heard a lot of prevalence of going to private markets and trying to capture illiquidity. So um, you mentioned the 60-40 portfolio. How do you think about asset allocation in the overall context, understanding, you know, where we are in the inflation regime as well as just, you know, uh, valuation multiples in general? So that's that's your long-winded answer.
2: Yeah, I'll answer it in two parts. On the liability side, a lot of that I have to leave up to the um, legislature and the board and, and their decisions on contribution rates and whatnot. There, I I could kill it for 10 years in a row and have a hard time making that balance work. It has to come from both sides, right? Um, in terms of the portfolio allocation, yeah, you know, I don't know that anyone's really 60 40 anymore. And I think. Um, the challenge is the closer you are to 60-40, if, if you are, the harder it's going to be to make those returns. And um, I didn't I didn't coin this phrase, but uh, uh, someone was saying, if you're on either side of that, all stocks or all bonds, you're, you're also in a difficult position. So what do you do? So I've thought about this a lot in my portfolio. And I also realized that even though I've been talking about inflation for a year and a half, and now people are saying it's here, not everybody obviously agrees whether it's transitory or not. Um, and they can't even agree on what transitory means. So, do you reorient your entire portfolio around this? And here's the problem: so, public pension funds run asset liability studies every couple years, three to five years. Some, some maybe some do it sooner. But that inflation component is a key input into asset prices and, and into our asset liability uh, models and into our CMAs, our capital market assumptions. So, let's say that something shocking does happen in the next eighteen to twenty-four months. We don't want to be sitting here and say, well, in three to five years, when we rerun the numbers, we'll see where that turns up for us, right? So we've got to have stuff in the portfolio now that we can sort of adjust or at least gives us a hope in other environments. Because if you think about it, if you think if you break the world down or the U.S. markets, because we care a lot about U.S. growth risk into regimes, Like three of the four regimes out there that that we tend to pay most attention to are not great environments for pension funds. The one that is was the one we just had the last, you know, 15, 20 years. So what I'm trying to figure out. So define
1: those define those just so our our listeners know. Are you thinking about the balance of growth and inflation or how how do you define those regimes?
2: I mean, and you can just think about it as a quadrant, and this isn't unique to me, right? I'll steal it from Ray Dalio, but rising growth, uh, falling growth, rising inflation, falling inflation. Um, and we've been having uh, growth plus falling inflation. It's like, great. But, but now where are we headed? Um, and I think, obviously, there's not complete consensus on what that means and, and over what time frame. Um, and the time frame part is important, right? Because maybe you can do 60-40 if your time frame is 150 years or your time frame is 30 years. But even 10 years or five years of not hitting real returns and not hitting your target is devastating for a pension. That, that's a long time. And there have been decades like that, right? There have been tons of 10-year periods, which were challenging. For some reason, we were just all forgetting it. So on, on our portfolio, what can we do? We're, we're rethinking real assets. Um, you can do things at the margin in the liquid assets, like risk premia and that, and, and moving things around. You can think about active different versus passive. You can think about value versus growth and whatnot. Um, but but I think the important thing for us is we can't take a bet on either side. It's just not my job to to call the market. So that's that's more your job. <laughs> um, but I want to make sure that we're doing enough that we have some protection, um, even down to looking at hedges and whatnot and, and seeing what we can do there.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed. I thought our macro guys came up with that quadrant themselves. So um, I'm going to revisit that conversation <laughs> with them. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, you mentioned about not being conventional. And, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, not bucking convention. You know, it, you interject what's called career risk, right? Where mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to be the status quo. And, you know, Sam was doing some research on, on the, the system. And he noticed that, you know, you don't have these conventional buckets, right? Where it's large cap growth, large cap value, let's call them the style boxes, and then just, you know, bonds and stocks. But you you approach a little differently. And I thought it was interesting because it was called growth, like broad-based growth, right, which is on the topic we're talking about, and then also diversifying strategies. So usually when someone leads with the phrase diversification, that means the returns stink, right? But uh, hey, you know, potentially they work in some environment. Uh, Sam used yeah. to joke, that's how we sell commodities, right? Maybe <laughs> they were a tough area, right? But they're diversifiers because they go down when everything else is going up. So yeah. thinking and putting on that framework, you know, how do you bucket ideas into this growth? And then what do you mean by diversifying? You've been to this risk premia concept. So how, how does that look? Yeah,
2: you know, a lot of this this was a hard adjustment for me because the, these buckets were here before I got here. And it took a long time for me to wrap my head around what, what they meant. I think the origin of it was in 08, um, when the, when the, all buckets, all correlations with one and all buckets started drawing down the labels that were associated with that. Like, why is our principal protection and fixed income bucket drawing down with our equity bucket? It was hard, um, for people to to not, not necessarily investment staff, but stakeholders public to figure out what was kind of happening. So we said, okay, rather, rather than have these buckets that you think you've known historically what they're going to do, now we'll categorize them by their risk drivers, which I think the growth bucket is basically everything that's driven by U.S. growth risk, right? I mean, it doesn't say U.S., but that's what we care about here, right? Um, so it is hard because if you ask me how many dollars do we have in emerging market equities, we actually like don't think about it that way. We probably think about it in risk budgeting or beta terms. It's good and bad. It gets you away from some of um, some of the headline risks. So um, if you look at our portfolio, for example, there's uh, short-term trend followers (STFs), which other people call CTAs. Um, but if but it, it, there's a lot of news running around about CTAs. There's not a lot of news running about STFs. So you get less caught up in the mania of the moment and what are these bad things in there. Um, And you focus more on on what they're supposed to be doing in the portfolio. So diversifying is an interesting question. What is diversifying? And I agree with you. Like six or seven years ago in a a prior life, I I said, well, cash is (laughs) diversifying to where we were at the time. Um, So I agree with you. It can can be tricky. And I, I don't understand how you make money over the long run without equities. I don't hate equities. I've never hated equities. I've never hated beta, right? I think you need it. I don't understand how you do anything without it. It needs to be in your portfolio. Um, but in this case, diversifying is really interesting because it's it can really be anything that's not you know heavily weighted toward this U.S. growth risk. And and I get your um, you maybe tongue and cheek comment about maybe I think you were trying to say some of that probably is beta. It's just got a lag to it, so uh, it's hidden beta in some respects. And, and maybe that's true in certain cases. Um, but the important part for us is that as the growth side of the portfolio keeps growing, it becomes a denominator issue for us. We need to rebalance. So we need to rebalance into something else that's not putting 100% of our eggs in one back- basket. So it can be that was a long way of saying it could be a number of different things. And the career risk point, if I can get to you on that too. Sure. I mean, that is a major issue. I think a lot of CIOs um, on, on this side face uh, how big of a change do we want to make? But but if you stick with sixty forty or playing vanilla portfolio for the like next ten years, you may not get fired. But I don't know how much good you're going to do um, for the the people you're trying to represent. So I think if you take this job, you have to be comfortable with a fair amount of career risk if you want to be any good at it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's good. I mean, you talked about being responsible, and you know, um, that's the responsibility that that one owns there too. And so, if you're um, thinking about you know, where you put, you know, these eggs in these baskets. Hey, so what happens from the standpoint of like public versus private? Because I hear so much that, you know, the, the institutional world is going private, 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 right? There's less, um, you know, less equities out there in the world today, um, you know, that there's just, you know, they can't get it with the valuation where it's at on the public market. So they go to private, which I always sc- scratch my head about that and say, well, isn't the heuristic just to value private off of public as well. So um, what are you thinking about the private buckets today? Are they larger than where you were, let's say, a couple of years ago? Um, or do you think about it differently? Um, are these truly in diversifying the bucket? Or is this really just, you know, as you said, it's more lagged beta and, and mark to whenever we want to market instead? So. <laughs>
2: I think there's a place for public and private all over the place. Uh, I think yes, I hear your point on equities. Although there are parts of the globe uh, where there's still alpha rate right, in public equities, um, I, I don't know. Some of them may be politically uh, challenging to get access to, but um, but no, I, I think that's fine. Um, and I think, and then we could go down the passive active route there too. But um, on the private side, I think it depends on your system. How much illiquidity can you take? I think private assets are great for a number of reasons, somewhat sarcastically. They're also great because you can't react that quickly to them. So you kind of have to grin and bear it. And I think that's great. I try to do that on my personal portfolio, just don't look. Um, I think we have grown. Uh, but a lot of that, like I mentioned earlier, was part of the asset allocation study from a couple of years ago where we had, we increased our target in private equity, for example, from six to 13 on the credit side, it's been much slower Um I'm, I am much better on the credit side than I am on the equity side. And that's been something that um, we've been focusing on, on here and that's gotten larger. It's still underweight, but, you know, I think there's, And realizing where you work, um, I think it's a challenging story for us sometimes on the on the very liquid side of of some of these markets. And um, the search for yield sometimes takes us in a different direction, Um, even, you know, even if it is somewhat of a a smoothing and lagged effect. But I think to be able to hold on to that capital and kind of wade through it um, is a good thing. On the private equity side, I, I have gotten a lot of questions lately. Are you thinking of increasing your allocation? And my answer would be no. I mean, if you, I don't want to like call a bubble here, but if you, if you look at the definition of a bubble, there's a lot of signals there that that that, that might be happening at some point. Um, and it's getting harder and harder to reach our allocations. And you're seeing massive funds coming out. Um, And so I think that I'm comfortable with where we are on the private equity side of the equation on the credit side. uh, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff and specialty finance and esoteric ABS and stuff out there that that we still don't have access to that we could get access to. So it's really just the opportunity cost. Um, And from a liquidity standpoint, I think we're more liquid than we really have to be right now. Um, But I can't speak for all all peers. Everyone's in a different position. Yeah, well,
1: I won't speak to the uh, esoteric ABS stuff, but if you need someone, we we may we may have some people that can find assets <laughs> there. So anyway, um, uh, forget the sales pitch. Sam was going to ask something, so go ahead, Sam.
3: Yeah, I was, was going to bring it on to this, uh, the idea of the the return bogey or the return targets that uh, are in place for for your you know your your system as well as others, and just thinking about the idea of balancing the needs of benefit obligations and. Uh, with the amount that's being contributed and the amount that you could potentially return from your team there. But I guess my question is how much input do you and your team have in that target return? You know, we're talking about how it's becoming a little bit more difficult in the current market environment, um, you know, based on some of the valuations and also just return expected returns across asset classes. But oftentimes it's about managing expectations about what can be returned, you know, given the current market versus what's required based on what your liabilities are. So, you know, ultimately, what is the, how much input do you have into that? Because you are the one that is, you know, tasked with achieving that return. Or is it just given to you and said, you got to do it. <laughs> oh,
2: <this laughs> is such, a, this is such a sensitive question. Let me try to navigate this as, as definitely as possible. Um, I have an opinion and I have an input for sure. I get asked how I felt, feel about it. I was asked when I joined how I felt about it. I think it is hard to make a seven. I also think it's hard to make a six. Um We also have high contribution rates. Some of our our um, beneficiaries are in forty percent plus brackets rate. Right? It's pretty high. and that that basically just started. So um, we are seeing the benefits of that paying out. I think if you were considering changing that that target rate, you, you wouldn't be able to immediately see the benefit of these sacrifices that are being made on the contribution side. So that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it, and this is like a little bit hypocritical because I do think it's hard to add 10 basis points to the fund. I, I think that's super challenging, um, but it's very difficult for me to say the magnitude of the difficulty in achieving six versus seven. Or, you know what I'm saying in this environment? So um,
1: they both seem very difficult, <laughs> irrespective of what number you choose. Right.
2: They both seem very difficult, yes. Um, so the other thing is, you know, we did just basically get four years of 7% in one year right now, which uh, one might think you would breathe a sigh of relief. It is smooth over a 25-year period on the actuarial side, so it's not that big of a change. But um, but that could change, you know, very dramatically the next year. Who knows? Um, and in fact, it will probably be worse, right, because we just pulled all this forward. So I don't know if I'm answering your question at all, but I guess I would say I don't really want to change the target return. Um, I I think I'm going to do my best to shoot for that, and uh, you know even if it, even if it was lower, I'd probably still try to shoot for more than that. So I, I don't I think I'm being very vague, but that's where I'm going to go with. All
1: right. Well, you said you're going to navigate it. So let, let's let's uh, portray this a different way. Instead of focusing on returns, let's let's focus on the other side of the equation, which is risk, right? So yeah. how, how do you think about risk in the framework of the pension system, right? So you have your retirees. Obviously, the biggest risk is that they, they don't, you know, they, they don't get their paychecks, right? So how, how do you think about risk in, in your framework when you're putting this stuff together? Um, is it traditional like Markowitz mean variance optimization? Do you think about drawdowns? Like how, what, what are you trying to do from a risk management standpoint when putting all this together?
2: Yeah, we may have talked about this, but I hate mean variance optimization. I think it's a complete, I, I think it's ridiculous, right? Like there's so many assumptions based and in, put into those inputs. It's fun. It's really fun to play with and see what you could do with the portfolio and target, but it's almost meaningless because you're lying a lot about a lot of the standard deviations and, and correlations and um, now, if you're well, if you just
1: a- add a bitcoin on the back test, <laughs> it looks really good that you should add a lot to your portfolio, right? So, I think that's kind of where you're going with all this, too, right? Exactly. It's all assumption driven. And what <laughs> I like to tell people is the optimizer gives you what would have been the best portfolio over
2: that period. Oh, <laughs> well, it's very true. Um, but also, a lot of those NBOs are running up core- I mean, I get that it's a little bit more complicated than a look back uh is you know weighted but um the last 20 years of correlation data is not the last 120 years of correlation data so i'm really curious to see how people are um are using mbo i mean you can shock it and 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 change how all those things work together but but we'll see so um no that is not how we manage risk it's not mean variance optimization um and I guess like a a little bit, I prefer like appraisal ratio, but we don't really even use that either. But I think that's a good bellwether for what you're kind of expecting to happen. Like the number one thing for me is liquidity risk and then inefficiencies. So having been on the portfolio management side for not that long, but uh, not as long as you potentially. But um, over the course of my career, I've seen a lot of places where on the institutional side, we're investing on one side and buying it on the other, or selling from one side and going to the other. And that happens in our PE book, right? But it happens throughout the fund. And I think part of the reason that happens is you've got seven different buckets and uh, they're investing in different things without a top-down view. And so one thing that we're really focused on here is being super efficient and not taking bets in one place and offsetting them in the other. And, And I can't take a lot of credit for that. That's a lot of Howard Hodel. He's much smarter than me. He's my chief risk officer and he's taught me a lot. Um, but that's something that we manage very carefully. We manage our fees. Um, we have to. We just have to be very razor thin on that because that's a source of alpha, too, if we can get there. Um, and then there's a, a, a ton of other things that we have to look at, like factor exposures in the portfolio um, and underlying risks there. But but for me, you hit the nail on the head, liquidity, paying out benefits. Like, that's literally what we're supposed to be doing. So we have to be very careful about that. So. Managing what our true liquidity is is critical. I I absolutely hate it when people tell me I can liquidate my portfolio in three days. I'm like, that's nice. When did you ever liquidate your portfolio in three days and it turned out well and how you wanted? No one ever does that. It's just such a ridiculous statement.
1: Well, that's Um, that's the new 22e4 rule that the SEC imposed to define liquidity. So (laughs) we just got a little wonky there on that too for mutual funds. But yeah, no, it's exactly. I mean, it it never goes well. It's like it's like. um, when we get a, a new client in too, and some of our guys want to like make duration match the first day, I'm like, really? We're have a long term client here, really, and so we're going to worry about one days of performance. Like the idea is to do it, size in, and and, and really execute thoroughly. So, speaking of execution, let us let's, let's transition to uh, last year. So I actually I, I think that was my last business meeting was actually of last year was actually with you prior to the yeah. pandemic. Um, I, was I remember what you said
2: day. too. You're like, the only way this becomes a panda, it becomes a bad thing for the economy is if no one goes out and buys anything or goes anywhere. And then like the next it, week. <laughs> it was
1: intuitious. It was a week. We were all gathered in a conference room or at a convention center, you know, on uh, in Oahu and, uh, you know, talking about this. Oh, this is going to pass. This is going to pass. How foolish we were. But how do you manage through an event like 2020? So like thinking about it, were you able to, to move things around? You talked about how swift markets move these days. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, it was like, you know, it was a 30% drawdown, then it just bounced back uh, with the Fed to the rescue. So were you able to make moves in that type of environment? Was the portfolio set up right? Did it behave? And also, what did you learn from 2020 uh, from that perspective? Yeah,
2: so we had, well, I can't say we, but because I've only been here three plus years, but um, the team had had, had embarked on this post date kind of um, trajectory where the next time a crisis happened, they would have these triggers in place to rebalance the portfolio. And that's essentially what happened. What I will say is even with the triggers, it didn't turn out kind of how we were thinking, right? And yes, I said these episodes are getting shorter, but but even when you're in the moment, you don't know that that's the case, right? Like I'm thinking back to like end of February, March, Actually, we have a, an overlay, a 6040 overlay on top of the portfolio for ca- for cash management, essentially. And I think in March we switched it, switched flipped the 6040. And it ended up being the wrong call, right? We, but if you looked out for June. But at the yeah. time, you're sitting there, like you just don't know how bad this right. is gonna get. And I remember thinking too, like this will be over by September. Whoops. I mean, it's <laughs> still not over to September a year later. So, right. I think the good news is on our liquid side, we did rebalance and, and that that helped us. um We actually may have rebalanced too much um but uh we' so we're working on kind of some of those studies now, but it did help our funds that you know had temporary drawdowns providing them with capital um this time, we also did like pretty quickly i want to say in three days um add to two new talf uh, type funds, which didn't end up, as you know, really doing much but I did. didn't think...
1: get any money invested <laughs> no. <laughs> uh yeah, we passed on those we just so there's no way this stuff works and um, you know but again uh, that was just you know a hunch from our, our
3: perspective too but
2: yeah i mean but the good news is that we were able to, to deploy to to do it and so if something does come up we know that we have the rails there to get all that done so um did the portfolio behave as expected yes i almost to a T exactly how we expected it. Um, to, well, I guess how the team expected it to perform. Um, but it depends on what time period you look at. So I had always said, part of my criticism of some of the strategies was this is going to draw down immediately. You don't think it will, because you're, when you run the analysis on it, you're looking over a six month time frame. but when you, do you need your cash over six months or did you need it right then? You need it right then. So yes and no, I, we were both right. Like it drew down immediately and then rebounded. So it depends what your needs are. I guess what we learned is we don't need the, we didn't need that cash right then, but in the in the flight to quality argument, that all kind of fell apart back then. So so it did perform, but it just always depends on what on what time frame you look at. And we only drew, drew down about eight and a half percent. Peers drew down much more than that, but we all catch up at your end. So it just depends on what was, you, what what it was important to you. So to us, it was protecting capital. To peers, it's you know making more money on the growth side of it. Potentially, I don't know. But um, so I think what we learned, uh, we spent a lot of more time looking at our rebalancing strategies. Um, I think we learned some lessons about private credit, probably for the better. Um, and uh, we learned you know about some new strategies that and how they they might perform.
1: Um, what was the lesson learned? Can you share that with us?
2: Well, you know, we actually didn't have a ton of private credit, I think, versus peers um, on average. And and we've been one of the things that I had kept hearing was, well, we don't know how it performs. We don't know how it performs, don't know how it performs. Well, it did fine, right? Um, so it made it through its first on, on ballots, like it, it made it through its first kind of hiccup there. Um and on the PE side, which seemed to be a little bit brutal in the beginning, then I mean, it made it through that in spades as well. So a lot of the stuff we didn't have a ton of access to, we kind of got to see how that played out. Um, and, you know, on a selfish level, I think it was the most interesting environment I've seen since 08. Oh, it's been pretty boring since then. So um, I think that there was a lot to do. In terms of managing the team, I think that was probably more challenging than the portfolio. Um, you'd think on an island with uh, severe weather risks, we could have would have been through this before, but we but we really didn't. Um, I think that, that the operational aspects of, like, you know, capital calls and whatnot, that, that was actually harder.
3: So in, in thinking about the portfolios that you you know, portfolios today and given the current market environment, are there any strategies you know, that you mentioned or assets that you know, traditionally have liked in the past that you're avoiding today? Just given perhaps the you know, overvaluation we were talking about a little bit earlier where, you know, things uh, have run up quite significantly. You know, So things that you might have relied upon in the past and you know, really liked in the past as a more of a strategic position in your portfolios, are, are there any things that have just changed because of this and oh, you're just looking to avoid now?
2: Maybe the opposite. I'll point to two. Um, and I tend to, to not be super fatty, like bad, not not calories, but I like, tend <laughs> to not like things cool. that everybody, everybody else is super into. So like on the private equity side, I think I kind of, not to pick on them, but for years, you've heard people saying we made, they showed that graph. Like, here's how much money we got from improvement in the business and operational. And, and here's how much we made on, on, on refinancing the debt and, and leverage. And, and for some reason, they're always so great at the operational side, right? Well, let's see it now. I'm very excited to see like now how great you're going to be on that side. So I think um, I think that's something I really want to see play out, um, especially because hedge funds, private equity, venture—they are all seem to be playing in the same space now. You could almost just, like lump them all together. When your hedge funds are doing venture capital, that's a very interesting environment, even if they're telling you early stages is, is is uncorrelated. We'll see how that plays out. On the other side, is there anything I liked that didn't? So I think it's the opposite. There's stuff that I haven't liked for about ten years that I think might become interesting in certain circumstances. So you mentioned commodities. I'm not a big fan of a long-only static commodities allocation, um, but but certain types of commodities, if I'm if we are if I am right on this inflation story, could become more interesting. Um, and so we'll, I don't know that I'd ever have a target allocation to it, but tactically, I think that. But that becomes more interesting.
1: Yeah. So you, you've now mentioned inflation a few times. So we've got to now pin you down on it. So what are you doing to try to capitalize on your view on inflation? And what is your view? Because you threw out the T-word, the transitory, and you know, you kind of criticized, you know, what is the definition of it. <laughs> so what, what is your view on inflation and what is interesting to you to try to capitalize on that view today?
2: Yeah, um, I don't think it's transitory. I do think it's a little bit longer lasting. Um, I don't I don't I don't have a ton of faith in the Fed to really rein it in. I think um, last week uh, on CNBC, they'd asked me, um, well, what do you think about break even rates? I, I don't really care that much about break even night rate rates. And that got cut out, thankfully, because I don't want a lot of backlash on that. But I mean, those are sort of being manipulated when you think about how much buying is going on in the tips market um by non-financial. By the players. Fed. Yeah.
1: Yeah, by the Fed, by the Fed themselves. They own almost a quarter, a quarter of the market already, right?
2: Yeah. So yeah. Um, so, so that I, I don't really pay attention to. Um, and on on the portfolio side, as you mentioned earlier, why do I care? I care because I care about the, the you know real returns we're gonna get out of this portfolio. So so what do you do? Because um So there's a lot of arguments like, oh, equities are a hedge against inflation. Okay, some. Um, So you could could make tilts around the portfolio there. You could um, also look uh, to be a little bit more country specific. Like maybe you're more interested in the UK than you are in the US for the breakdown of, you know, kind of what's in from a beta level, from what's in their index kind of perspective. Um, You could look at your uh, real asset portfolio, but I think. I, that that real asset comment kind of annoys me sometimes because not everything there's a really great hedge against inflation. I mean, they don't have, not all assets there have a great beta there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the tricky part for me. I don't want to make a huge market call right now. And I don't want to take, so a couple of years ago and I'll back up, I was thinking more about our real asset portfolio being more equity, heavily equity related. And um, at the time I was thinking, it, it, that would not have turned out well. So I'm trying to be, super careful about it um but you know we were also looking in, at at hedges um and two years ago we thought of or i guess more like 18 months ago it, it may have made a little more sense um now it's it's we'll see what happens there um but we're, we're we're underweight on our um on our real asset portfolio so trying to find a way to get that up to speed quickly and it may have to be through synthetics which isn't you know super ideal um, but like I said earlier, I just can't keep rebalancing into stuff that I know is going to get hammered if that's the case.
1: So what do you put in the real asset bucket? We t- we mentioned briefly commodities. Uh, you said you don't like tips. Those are usually the, the top two things I hear, especially from clients these days. And they don't understand why we think inflation's not really transitory or it's likely not to be. And we don't like tips, uh, but it's, it's valuation. I agree. That's why I agree wholeheartedly. It's the first thing I troll out is. Here's the Fed's footprint since March of 2020, right? In the tips market. So what other things belong in that bucket? You briefly mentioned equities. What kind of uh, exposures do you think about that?
2: Well, so I mean, here's the beautiful thing about how Hawaii works because it's supposed to be driven off whatever that risk is in that portfolio. It can beat almost anything. So you can have private credit type stuff in there with like a real asset bent in it. Um, You can have infrastructure investments, natural resources. You can have equities, you can have tips. And then I think you have tactical commodities um, as an option. I don't think you have a target to it, but as as a potential option in there. And then I actually separate that a little bit from our real estate portfolio portfolio core and value add, um, mostly because there's not a lot that that can really be done quickly there, unless on the public side, right? Um, But those are also potential parts of it. But we're a lot of these... We have we have well, a lot of these were underweight significantly, and we need to get into the market, which is why I'm more interesting, more interested in the moment at you know some some type of synthetic exposure.
1: Okay, so you also mentioned that you don't like to chase the fads. Um, I, I won't put you on the spot and say what are the largest fads in there, but um, as you think about the future and you think about you know the way markets are moving, I hear this phrase of a democratizing you know finance and. That seems to be a very common phrase when something new is introduced there. Um, <laughs> what, what do you see as kind of new burgeoning areas of the market that interest you, okay, whether or not it's appropriate for the pension system or not? Yeah,
2: um, it feels like you're kind of asking me about crypto. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all.
2: Um,
1: Sam's the crypto guy in the, in the firm, so that's not
2: me. Yeah. I don't think, uh, democratizing finance is a fad. I do think, um, I'm so curious to see what happens in like the next 10 years. Um, I do think there'll be probably, a, I used to work actually in, um, payments M and A and I should have stuck with it. It would have been a very lucrative career, I guess. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens there. Um, and digital currencies and, and what the, what does that mean for, a fixed income of their central bank currencies, and I think all of that's very interesting. And I'd, I'd love to hear uh, more. I have some idea of what you would say about it. Love to hear more about it at sometime. Um, on the blockchain side, I don't, I don't think that's a fad necessarily either. That doesn't mean I think it's in, it's something that at this moment we should be invested in. For one. Um, I don't know that it's aligned with some of the ESG principles that our that our board is trying to um, align themselves with. I know I said that I didn't want to go there, but let's go there for a second. And then um, I don't have blockchain or Bitcoin in the fund for the same reason. I don't have a long only gold allocation. To me, it is essentially digital gold. And um, so if I wanted that, then then fine. Um, but tactic, tactically, know, I've said that that's a different story, but we're also kidding ourselves if we don't have, if we don't think that we have that somewhere in our portfolio, right? Like it's there. Um, the play is certainly there. Um, so I actually think on the fad side, a lot of them are structures and investment products, um, that were, (laughs) so I always say like, if something was designed by the allocator in terms of a structure, it's probably not the most optimal way to go. Right. Because if there was an optimal way to go, they would have sold it to us. Um, so I'm interested to see how some of these like super long live funds are going to turn out, for example. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that, that that's a big thing. And I wasn't leading you down the path of crypto just sort of, just so you, you know that. <laughs> but also, you know, you wouldn't be the first guest that broke their own rules. Uh, we've had a few of those recently. We don't want to talk about this and they bring it up. So, um, so you're, you're in good company there. Um, but let, let's go back to, to kind of one more thought on, on that as well. And, you know, the democratization, I, that phrase is thrown around a lot with the crypto world, but also in the prevalence of retail. Yeah. And we've seen the the resurgence of the retail trader. Um, you know, a lot of this has you know, been attributed to commissions being lower, um, accessibility, accessibility, fractional shares, you know, there's an ETF for everything out there. Um, how has that changed about, you think about market structure? Does that play any part about you as an allocator or is it something that you know you just say hey this is a fad they come and go retail will get bored at some other time does it change the way you think about you know kind of how to allocate capital as well
2: probably more so if i had outright short positions (laughs) (laughs) um i think i actually think you know i don't know that this is answering your question but i think it might call the marketplace i think um it I don't think it was ever easy to make money, but um, I think it's gotten substantially harder. Um, and I don't think people are factoring that in because they are—I should say PMs because some. I don't think that they think that's sustainable, um, but I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, technically, I'm a millennial, and so I can kind of relate to some of those things. And I think that this um, euphoria is here to stay, especially if the we keep getting you know "quote unquote" helicopter money. We've seen where that goes. That goes into, into these equity flows and it's going back into the market. And we haven't seen any indication that that's going to stop, especially if um, I think like the September jobs number might be pretty, or August in September might be pretty bad. And if that's the case, like, and we keep getting these, um, then that won't stop. And so those flows will keep going into the market. So I don't know if it is a fad, I think it's going to be a little bit longer lived than, it, than everybody kind of thinks. My, my concern is more on the regulatory side. Um, what, What is this administration going to do if this does go south and um, and how is that all going to pan out? But I do think that there'll be some people that just say, I can't play in this game. It doesn't make sense anymore. The fun, the fundamentals aren't being traded aren't being traded on. And we've heard that for a really long time. And my response is, yeah, that's frustrating. I went to Chicago. I believe in efficient markets. But yeah, get over it. That sucks. So someone's going to to take your lunch, find a way to, to make it work.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And th- you forgot the other thing that people have done with those checks, and it's go to Hawaii and <laughs> inundated your island over there as well. So, um, but it's, it's good to see business coming back as well. Um, Elizabeth, um, you know, we're running out of time here and we got to get to Sam's favorite part of the show. But before uh, we do, can you tell our listeners out there how they can learn more about what you do, the, the work you, you put out there, uh, any way to access your current thinking?
2: Um, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I try to stay off social media for the most part, but uh, I do have a LinkedIn profile, Elizabeth T Burton. Um, and then occasionally I am on podcasts and on CNBC. Um, but I'm always willing to talk to people. Uh, so you can shoot me a note. Um, I believe if you if you want to take the time to go to the website and look at my email address, you may do so. Um, but yeah, I'm always open to chatting with people, particularly if you disagree with me.
1: Well, there's no shortage of that. I know we've had some good debates in your offices, so I look forward to the next one as well. So thanks for taking the time. But as I said, we got to jump into Sam's favorite part of the show before you leave. So Sam, take it away.
3: All right, Elizabeth. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff to elicit the top of mind response. Uh, as we said in the past, we try to keep it to one word uh, answers, but that often fails. So you know, fire away. You know, on uh, on your top of mind response. But I'm going to start off with Jeff first with boosters. I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know if they're going
1: to be necessary or what, but I'll give you an anecdote. I was at dinner a couple of weeks ago and sitting at a table and I ordered a booster seat for myself because the seat was so low. Uh, My colleagues can do this. This was a business dinner too. We were, uh, we were out somewhere and it was so low. And the, the waitress actually said we do have them. So it wasn't like the kids booster. It was another like cushion we put down. So the first thing I thought of was that booster that I used recently. So I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, it's what I needed. I could sit at the table. I felt like a, a child prior to that. So,
3: I'm yeah. not uh, well a very short taken, guy either. So it's, I can no,
1: um, and the other person with me was, you know, about six foot tall. I'm a, I'm a few inches taller than that, but um, uh, and he was just sagging in it too. So after seeing me do it, uh, he ordered one as well. So yeah. I, I just thought maybe this restaurant should also consider maybe raising the the chair. You know, it was like a couch in a corner as well. Um, but, but I did see John Cena at dinner as well. So if for our wrestling fans out there,
3: so oh well, Elizabeth
1: seems like she seemed happy at that. So there you go. Yeah,
3: yeah. He's got a couple of new uh, used in uh, Fast and Furious Nine, I think recently. I haven't caught that yet, but I, I plan to. So, but anyway, you put a that gives a new uh, life to the word to the term low riding. You know. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so that was not a one word response. So um, yeah. feel free uh, <laughs> to criticize me.
3: So yeah. So Elizabeth, he set the tone there. So we'll pass it back to you with rental cars?
2: Money. I, (laughs) I made, I have to explain this. We bought a car, a third car in March because it was cheaper to buy one for three months than rent it out. And we sold it for a 25% uh, premium uh, recently, but we were also able to tour away for $350 a day. It's a 2014 Ford Fiesta. (laughs)
1: So it's a four-party car, right? The, the Fiesta, right? That's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. It was uh, a, do you a talk right about first. market inefficiencies? You exploited one there.
2: Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. That was
1: pretty
3: yeah, we've cool. All heard the, we've all heard the horror stories, too, where it's cheaper to, to rent out U-Hauls instead of uh, trying to find a, a rental car. So taking yeah. one of those U-Haul trucks out around the island must have been a, a unique perspective. Yeah, bring this, so Yeah. Bring this one back to Sherman with crude oil.
1: It's going up eventually again, and you know, it's had a rough uh, patch here. But I, I think we're going to see triple-digit oil again in the next year or so. So I just think once once the economy's open back up, I think that that the supply side can't keep up with the demand.
3: And it's a good segue to Elizabeth's next one: second wave of COVID shutdowns.
2: <laughs> I mean, all I can think of saying is like, "Ugh!" I <laughs> I can't. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. it's just, I mean, I guess we saw it coming. It's just unreal. It's just like my, when you said that, like my whole body just immediately tensed up in stress. So thank you very much. I'm going to send you the bill for my therapist, but <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, you know, Hawaii may be reshooting down here again too. Um, so we'll see what happens. I certainly hope not. It's been very devastating.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, well, every good allocator needs a very good therapist, so. <laughs> I
3: right, bring it back to you, Sherman. with small businesses. Backbone. It's the backbone of our economy. All right. Elizabeth with crypto riches.
2: Um, on the bandwagon? I know that's three words.
3: <laughs> that works. It's Sherman Sherman's uh, first uh, response, so anything there wins. Back to you, Sherm. With uh, data privacy, important,
1: and that's what I don't understand about the newer generation giving away all your data for free. Yeah. You know uh, that that Gmail isn't free. You know you're you're getting you're getting pilfered and they're stealing it. So uh, you know m- maybe we'll go back to having uh,
3: you know uh, that is a priority again. Mm. Right. I hope so. And then uh, trend following to you, Elizabeth.
2: Uh, I have one more answer on that. Um, overpriced. I mean, I can only think about it in my portfolio context and, uh, and, um, to me, it's, it's It's pricey when you can, it's getting pricey, um, for what it is, but.
3: All right. And then we're moving into the final round here with Sherman says. So Sherman hard mountain Dew. Oh,
1: is that the thing I sent through this morning, hey. like the new booze? Yeah, I'm Elizabeth in. I'm totally in. <laughs> Elizabeth seems stoked, but I love Mountain Dew. Love Mountain Dew, the zero sugar. Love all permutations. Love the America version. You know, the one that's red, white, and blue that it has on there. Can't wait to try it. Yeah. She's got her phone out. Yeah.
2: I, I I texted it to everybody this morning, but isn't it basically like Four loco or Red Bull Vodka? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So you just got to be careful. You know, don't don't have 30 of them. But yes, um, it's it's kind of there again. And um, I used to originally when the seltzer things came out, I called them for locos because that's what I thought they really were, too. But this is going to be pure caffeine and everything. So it's funny you said that because I sent that out to my whole team this morning as well.
2: So,
1: <laughs> know, on the gonna same it.
2: I'm going to try it. I can't wait. Yeah, it could be, yeah it's not it so 2022,
1: though. So COVID better not take that from
2: us. Yeah, right. Well, maybe we should put orders in now before uh, they're twenty-five dollars a can. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah. Well, you can always get them at the Sherman Trading Post. You know, when they when they become yeah. available there. So. That's
1: right. That's right. It, it'll be part of the supply. There was toilet paper and eggs for a while there at the, at the trading right. post. So.
3: <laughs> All right, and then the last one for the show goes to you, Elizabeth, with vacation destination. Alaska. The exact opposite, uh, almost, of where you are. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. so. yeah. It makes it's sense. funny how
1: that's 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 usually what people do. By the way, I did go there two months ago. Gorgeous, awesome time, beautiful place, first time ever, and it was awesome. It, it totally delivered way above expectations. So wow. um,
2: good to hear. Yeah. I'm gonna try to go yeah. there. For
1: so a <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, thank you so much. As you said, as you see, it's a lot harder to do. Sherman says when it, when you're on the spot it seems a lot easier when you listen to other people do it. So I failed <laughs> uh, you do quite well. Yeah. I, I set the bad tone. So thanks again for your time today, Elizabeth. It's great to see you again. Thanks for participating. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you can catch us on the YouTube channel. It's youtube.com backslash double line capital, uh, all one word there. Uh, you can also catch Sam on his other podcast to Monday morning minutes. Uh, He's a podcast guru these days. He does that with Jeff Mayberry. Also on the YouTube channel is channel 11, which is hosted by portfolio manager Ken Shinoda. Uh, So this is our plug for all of our information we're putting out in this digital world today. And um, also you can catch us on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google, Apple, uh, a bunch of other things I don't know about. And also don't forget to follow us on the Twitter uh we have that. It's Sherman Show Pod all one word um, on there. And you can see some insights here as well as clips from today's show. So thanks again, Elizabeth. It's Elizabeth Burton. She is the chief investment officer of the employee retirement system of the state of Hawaii, as I call it hires. You know, is is that how you say the acronym? Uh,
2: it is hires. You could just drop the I and call it hers, though. I wouldn't do yep.
1: that. Hey. you know um no no problem we can do that it's yours and hers so (laughs) absolutely but thanks again for the time elizabeth we really enjoyed it take care
2: thank you
0: Audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 line Capital